Turn in your Bibles tonight to Mark chapter number 16. Mark chapter number 16. Boy, isn't it good to be in the Lord's house on this Easter evening. I'm so thankful to get to be here and uh, so thankful that you're here and all them people sitting at home in deviled egg comas don't know what they're missing. Amen. I'm thrilled that you're here tonight. Mark chapter number 16. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Mark chapter 16, verse number 1 here. Of course, one of the gospel records and accounts of the resurrection. I want us to notice something that caught my attention in our text. I want to encourage you a little bit with it tonight. Mark chapter 16, verse number 1. The Word of God says, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. They said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted, ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him as he said unto you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Lord, what a blessing to get to be in your house. Thank you for the good service we had this morning. But now that that service is past. Lord, it's resigned to eternity, relegated to a moment we cannot reach out and touch. But this service is before us tonight. And help us to have our mind and our heart uh, drawn upon this this time, focused upon these few moments that you may speak to our hearts. Lord, thank you for the good singing we've heard and the testimony. Lord, thank you for these missionaries. Thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of God's people. I pray that you'd help us tonight to open our hearts to the truth of your word and may you get glory out of it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there are a lot of astounding facts in the story of the resurrection. There are a lot of little things and details that are noticed. And when you consider the timeline of how these events unfolded on that day, you begin to pick up various threads from various sources. There are certain things that Mark knows that nobody else knows. There are certain things that Matthew noticed that nobody else noticed. Certain things that Luke learned that nobody else learned. Certain things that John saw that nobody else saw. And it's always been fascinating to me to see uh, not the discrepancies or disagreements in the gospel records, because there are none, they are perfectly harmonious, but to see the distinction in each of them and to consider that and the weight of that. When we read in Mark's account of the message that is given from the angels to the women there at the empty tomb, I want you to notice an emphasis that is given in Mark's account that's not found in the others. The Bible says in verse number 6 that this angel said to them, Be not affrighted, ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples, notice these next two words, and Peter, that he goeth before you into Galilee. There ye shall see him, as he said unto you. I've often thought when I have approached this passage, isn't it interesting that in Mark's account, Peter is singled out uniquely in the message that's delivered. Now you say, well, preacher, are you saying that it wasn't said that way? No, I believe it was said that way. 
I believe it was said exactly that way. I think there are a thousand ways in which as this message was delivered to the other disciples, it's possible when they told John this message that they did not lay that emphasis upon it when they told him personally because it wasn't pertinent to him, didn't apply to him. Uh, But whenever Mark's Gospel is recorded, us believing Peter to have been the source of of this Gospel, Peter mentions himself that when the Lord says, delivers this message unto them by way of the angels, that God Himself emphasized the fact that the risen Lord was interested in seeing Peter specifically. And you say, preacher, I, I, I see that in the text, but what does that mean to me? Well, isn't it amazing? You know, one commentator said this, that if you were to somehow surgically remove Christ from the Gospels, what you'd really have is the Gospel of Peter the Apostle. Uh, what we mean by that is that when you read the Gospels, no figure looms larger in it than that of Peter. And it's not because he always got it right. In fact, it is more likely because it seems like Peter always got it wrong. Uh, Peter was somebody who was constantly putting his foot in his mouth. He was somebody that was constantly prone to these wild swings from from uh, states of, of spiritual revelation and knowledge and wisdom uh, till uh, the, the most base and the most uh, carnal and the most ignorant of perspectives. And these wild swings happen in the life of Peter the Apostle. He was a man that was a passionate man. He was a man uh, that was sometimes an unthinking man, but he was a man of boldness. He was a man of initiative. He was a man of certitude. And men like that very often find themselves swinging between these high highs of great achievement and these low lows of miserable failure. So when we approach this moment in the crucifixion message, we are reminded, and it's uh, worth our time to stop and consider, what kind of shape was Peter in? I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, a resurrection message for a ruined man. Peter is not at one of the high places in his life when he receives this message. In fact, on the contrary, we find that Peter is at one of the lowest moments in his life when the Lord gives this message to him. God singles Peter out and and considering what's taken place, Peter's been a busy man over the past couple chapters. In fact, turn back to chapter 14 with me. And I want you to notice some things that had happened just in, in the past four days in the life of Peter. When you read the story leading up to the crucifixion, when you read their experience in the upper room and the things that the Lord taught, when you read the experience of the Lord washing the disciples' feet, when you read them leaving the upper room and and going down to the uh, garden and, and, and going down by way of the Mount of Olives, Old King's Highway, when you read the story of what took place in the garden that evening, when you read what took place after the Lord was arrested, you'll find Peter's name and Peter's behavior and actions peppered all throughout that narrative, featuring largely in what's delivered to us. And think about what kind of a few days he had had. You ever had just one of those weeks, you don't know what happened, but it's like it woke up and only got worse? One of them times where things just get bad to worse to worse. Man, Peter had had a rough week. And when we look at what had happened, I think we'll understand why this specific special message was delivered distinctly to him. Look with me in chapter 14. The Lord Jesus, He, after the upper room, after teaching all of the things that are taught in John uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all those things had transpired. The Bible tells us in John's account that they went out to the Mount of Olives and they sang a hymn as they went. And as they're traveling, the Bible says in Mark's account, verse 27, that Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. 
But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Now we could pause there. The Lord says, uh, on this night, every one of you is going to forsake me. Now remember, this is not the first of this kind of, uh, of talk that they have heard this evening. In fact, as they were gathered around the supper table, the Lord had said that one of them there would betray Him. And all the disciples, Judas included, uh, they, they, they all uh, questioned among themselves and asked the Lord, is it I, is it I, is it I? And Peter was one of those. So just a few hours earlier, he's willing to entertain the thought that it could be him that betrays Jesus. But now as they're walking to the Mount of Olives and he's energized by the teaching he's heard, he's emboldened by the fellowship that he's enjoyed. And the Lord says, hey, on this night, they're going to smite me, they're going to arrest me, and all of you are going to forsake me. The Bible says in verse 29 that Peter said unto him, although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Now Peter didn't accept that. He spake the more vehemently, verse 31, saying, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. Can I tell you something? There is a place for boldness. There is a biblical place for confidence. Cast not away your confidence. It has a great recompense of reward. When I find myself boasting in me and I, I find I'm always setting myself up for failure. Peter says, hey, all these other jokers might, not me, Lord, never me. I would never be the one. So he has wildly committed himself on this evening. In fact, in direct contradiction to what the Word of God through the person of Christ has revealed. So he, we could say this. You say, preacher, how did that night go for him? Well, the first thing we see is he had sworn on the walk that he would not betray the Lord. Look down in verse 33. The Bible says that he, Jesus, taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Carry ye here and watch. And he went forth a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Now let's pause right there and survey the scene before us. The Lord Jesus and his disciples have arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord Jesus has had one simple request. He looks around at those three men, at Peter and James and John. He says, listen, I, I, I need to pray. I need to get along with my Father. I need to talk with Him. My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. I'm, I'm going through a spiritual battle right now. And all I need from you fellas is just to pray. I want you to just sit here and pray and ask my Father to give me strength, give me wisdom, give me comfort, uh, to give me grace during this time. Fellas, just sit here and pray. You can imagine standing there looking at those three men. And here's Peter. I'm talking about not 20 minutes ago. He had sworn up and down that it would never be him that would forsake the Lord. And the Bible says, verse number 37, And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter. Now, the other gospel record says that he addressed this to all of them. You say, now preacher, why does Mark say he said it unto Peter? Well, because Peter's one that's the source of Mark's gospel. And he's saying, yeah, he said it to them other fellows, but he was really saying it to me. Saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? So in other words, the night for Peter was immediately marked with a great pledge, a great bravado, a great boast, and an immediate fall-on-your-face failure of his own behavior. He has already let the Lord down. In fact, I would say it this way. In a certain sense, he's already abandoned the Lord. He's already forsaken the Lord before he ever cursed, before he ever denied. He had already in that moment not stood up to the challenge and he had fell asleep. He had slumbered in the garden. 
When we go a little further down in verse number 46, the Bible tells us that uh, Judas comes with a company of men. They are the uh, they are the soldiers of the high priest. They are the bodyguards, the household soldiers and servants of him. And they came to arrest the Lord Jesus. And much takes place, much transpires in that moment. Uh, the Bible tells us this in verse number 46 of our text. In uh, chapter 14, they laid their hands on him, on the Lord Jesus, and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, we could spend a lot of time just preaching on that story and on what that means and that significance. Hey, listen, uh, anger will make you slash at people that didn't do nothing to you. Rage and hate will make you, will make you fight folks that ain't your enemy. And on that evening, it's interesting, you know, we, we know from John's account, and it's, it's actually only John is the one that names who it was that held the sword that night, but he tells us that it was Peter. When Peter's telling it, he cannot even, when he's sharing it with John Mark, he cannot even bring himself to admit that it was him that had held the sword. People might say, well, preacher, what a strange thing that he cut this man's ear off. The Bible says it was a man by the name of Malchus. He was the high priest's servant. What a strange thing. I don't know about you. I haven't met a lot of fishermen, but I've never met one that was good with swords particularly. Uh, I don't know. You know, listen, I, I, I can't even split a quart of wood. <laughs> let alone take a big old sword and and deftly, with precision, slice a man's ear off. What was going on that night? Well, I'll tell you this, he wasn't aiming for his ear. He was trying to take his head off. You say, preacher, well, what was it that this man did wrong? This man didn't do anything wrong. He, he made one fatal mistake, and that he was standing between Judas and Peter. And Peter was willing to get anybody out of his way he had to get out of his way to get to that dirty, rotten, turncoat uh, Judas and deal with him for betraying their Lord. Here is the picture of a man who's acting in wrath. Here's a picture of a man who, who almost kills another person because he can't get his anger under control. And through his bad testimony, almost slays an innocent bystander. I would say this, things is getting worse for Peter. I, I don't know about you, but when I start operating in the flesh, I find it goes from bad to worse. I go from making kind of some mistakes to totally mistakes to terrible mistakes before I've even blinked my eyes. What do we see? Well, he had sworn on the walk. He had slumbered in the garden, but he had slashed at a bystander. Now he's operating fully in the motivation of the flesh. And then the sad testimony in verse number 50 gives us the next step in his spiral downwards. The Bible says, they all forsook him, forsook the Lord, and fled. How it must have pained Peter to admit that to John Mark. How difficult it must have been as this young man is sitting with bated breath and, and with spellbound attention upon him, listening to the story of how the Messiah was crucified for Peter to have to admit, John, I, I wish you didn't have to write it. I wish you could say that most. I wish you could say almost. But you need to write it the way it happened, Mark. You need to write that they all forsook him and they all fled. I would say this. He, on that evening, had sworn on the walk and had slumbered in the garden. He had slashed the bystander. But he had scattered with the rest of them. Yeah, he had. He'd done exactly what he swore he wouldn't do. I think we ought to say, by God's grace, I won't do this. And I won't do that. Because here's the truth of the matter. Man, you got it in you. Just like I got it in me. Just like they got it in them. To do those things that we would never imagine possible. He had done exactly what he said he wouldn't do. He had scattered with the rest. That didn't end there. Verse 54 the Bible tells us that they had arrested Jesus and began to take him to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, for that kangaroo court and that mock trial and that 
travesty of travesties of justice. The Bible says in verse 54, And Peter followed him afar off, even unto the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself with fire. I want you to notice he slowed in the journey. Now, what do you have thought? I mean, I can tell you how I would have loved to imagine it would have gone, that Peter would have immediately came to himself and realized what he had done, that just 20, 30 feet away after that quick bolt fight or flight action, that he would have stopped and considered what he had done and turned around and fled back, sped back to the, to the side of the Lord Jesus and said, if you're going to take him, you're going to have to take me too, and I'm never going to leave him. That's not what happened. Instead, he, in meekness, in humiliation, and in cowardice, slinks back, and follows at a distance. Well, I wish I could tell you I've never slowed in my journey. I wish I could tell you I've never followed him from afar. But if I have to be honest, man, there's been plenty of times. Well, I've followed him. I hadn't completely give up and I hadn't completely got out. But I've just started following him from afar. Let a little distance build up. Just tried to track where I think he's going and where I think he'd want to be without staying in fellowship with him. And just sort of followed in his footsteps without following side by side. Things ain't looking good for old Peter, are they? Verse number 66 tells us what happens next. As they're gathered around the fire, the Bible says that as Peter was beneath the palace, there cometh one of the maids, the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, And thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I, I, I know not, neither I understand I what thou sayest. And he went out onto the porch and the cock crew. And a maid saw him again and began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean. Thy speech agreeth thereto. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. So if we're following his footsteps on this evening, he had sworn on the walk and slumbered in the garden. He had slashed at a bystander. He had scattered with the rest. He had slowed in his journey. Then we see he had slandered him by the fire. He had stood there like somebody that didn't know God and didn't want to know God and cussed with the rest of them to try to prove to them that he wasn't one of these followers of Jesus. I, I think there's been so much preaching done on this passage in Peter's life that we all have a pretty clear example and understanding that it could be us. But when we look at this man and, and see not just how far but how fast this all happened. You understand, this didn't happen over a course of 6, 8, 12 months. He got out of church, quit going, got into sin. I'm talking about in one night. He goes from saying, hey, the rest of them might, but I never will. It won't be me. I'm going to tell you something. Your flesh and my flesh is just as rotten as it can be. And the moment that you put your faith in it, is the moment you have proven yourself the biggest fool in the room. You cannot trust your flesh, just like I cannot trust my flesh. It don't take, it don't take six months being out to get in Peter's shape. Hey, in six minutes it can happen. You can go from walking with God and being walking in the energy of the Spirit and in obedience to the Word of God, to all of a sudden here you are all messed up and twisted up and gnarled up and doing stuff that you would have never thought that you would have done. He had slandered by the fire, but verse 72 tells us the shape that Peter was left in before this message reaches him. Verse 72 says, The second time the cock crew, 
And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him before the cock crow twice, Thou shalt deny me thrice. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that the Lord actually turned and looked on Peter. That they were in a, in a line of sight, in a proximity. And that that look, that that look broke his heart. The Bible says when he thought thereon, he wept. Luke tells us he went out and he wept bitterly. Here's a man that had sorrowed over his sin. Now this is not a man that is, is defiant in his sin. This is not a man that's defending his sin. This is not a man that's despising God because of his sin. But this is a man that's defeated, discouraged, and devastated by his sin. That distinction is important. When we come to Mark chapter 16, Peter is a man who has been thoroughly broken over the way he has behaved himself. He has acknowledged that what he did is wrong. And nobody in the room with uh, other than Peter, nobody in that room would have proclaimed more boldly or with more certitude what a failure Peter was than Peter himself when you come to Mark 16. He is at the lowest of the lowest places. He's humiliated. He is disgraced. He is discouraged. He feels as though he is the worst Christian to ever walk the earth. And if he's like most of us, he's probably wondering whether he even is a Christian after all. Man, what a low place he must have been. Now, let's stop and ask the question we asked when we began tonight. Why did the Lord single out Peter? And I'll tell you exactly why the Lord singled out Peter. Because Peter needed it more than anybody else. Can I tell you how good our God is? He knows what you need. At those moments, those lowest of low moments, He knows what you need. He was willing to speak to Peter. You say, preacher, did, did the Lord really say that? Yeah. You say, preacher, why didn't John record it? Because it didn't say, and John. That's why I didn't record it. Didn't mean nothing to him. I mean, the, the, the central message did. Don't misunderstand me. But why was it that it resonated with Peter? Because Peter's a man that needs it at this moment. Peter is a man whose heart is broken and whose life is devastated. And in those simple two words that are mentioned, and Peter, we find baked within that three truths that we all need to know at those lowest of low moments. Here is a ruined man. You would have thought that the Lord would have said, and oh, by the way, tell Peter this and this and this and this and this. But that's not what the angel says. Peter just simply needs to know the Lord asked about. One of the things as a pastor I'll often do, and in fact, I did it yesterday. I texted somebody that's had surgery. Everybody around here must have big money. They're always having surgery. And uh, that somebody had had surgery, and I, I texted the spouse of this person. I said, how's so-and-so doing? And they texted me back and said, well, they're doing well. You know, they got a little bit of pain and this and that. And I said this, tell them that I asked about it. And I, I, I emphasize, I want them to know. I didn't, I didn't call them directly because I figured they'd probably be resting. But I said, tell them I asked about it. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Is all that I'm suggesting is I want them to know the historical fact that Toby Weber has inquired as to their state? No, here's what I want them to know. I want them to know I'm thinking about them. I want them to know I care about them. I want them to know they're on my heart, they're on my mind, and they're in my prayers. And Peter, the angel said. And Peter. What was the Lord trying to say? I think there's three things we could mention tonight, and I'll mention them and I'll be done. I would say the first thing that 
the angel is wanting to convey to Peter. And the first thing that the Lord wants Peter to know, just in these two simple words, and Peter, here's what he wants him to understand, that forgetting is impossible. And you say, preacher, what do you mean forgetting is impossible? Doesn't the Lord forget our sins? Oh, yes, He does. Hey, their sins and iniquities, well, I remember no more. He judicially, uh, officially decides to no longer bring up charges against so, preacher, what about us? Can't we forget our our past iniquities and mistakes and sins? Well, hey, bless the Lord, we can. Uh, uh, you know, uh, if I remembered all the things that I've done wrong, I'd never sleep away. And thankfully, hey, the, the the blood of Christ can purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I'm glad, hey, we can even forget some of those things that we've done. But that's not the kind of forgetting I'm talking about. I'll tell you exactly what Peter was thinking on that night. And I can tell you this because I know people. Peter was thinking, well, the Lord will ask about the rest of them, but he he ain't going to ask about me. He's done forgotten about me. He's done moved on from me. He's done done with me. And he's never going to call my name again. I don't know if you've ever felt that low. All the right theology that you have packed away in your heart and mind cannot speak louder than the fears and anxiety and racket of your flesh in that moment of defeat and discouragement. I'll tell you exactly what you'll begin thinking. You'll begin thinking, hey, I've messed up too bad and God is done with me. I'm here to report to you tonight, you may think He's forgotten you, but He don't forget nobody. And He don't forsake nobody. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 49, 14. Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me and my Lord hath forgotten me. The Lord said, how do I answer that? Here's how the Lord answered it in verse 15. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee, I love this, (laughs) I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before thee. Here's God's answer. You know, Paul, Paul was fond of a phrase in the New Testament. It was the phrase, God forbid. We use it today. Sometimes people use it, I think, carelessly, thoughtlessly, and probably irreverently. But when Paul used that term, he was using it descriptively and specifically and with meaning. And he would say things like this, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Hey, hath God cast away Israel? God forbid. God hath not cast away Israel. And here's what he was saying. God ain't even going to tolerate that talk. He ain't even going to allow you to have that kind of conversation in His presence. Here's God's answer in Isaiah 49. The Lord's forgotten me. He's forsaken me. He's done with me. He's cast me off. God says, don't even... Hey, I don't allow that talk around here. Don't even entertain the thought. Can a mother forget her child? That's a rhetorical question. The implication is no. But God says, hey, I'll even be honest enough to admit sometimes it's happening. But even though that might happen with them it is more unlikely that I would forget you than it is that a mother would forget her own nursing child. God's answer is, how could I forget you? I've graven you on my palms. I've written you on my heart. I've got you wrote down in the soul of my souls and on my mind. We are one, you and I. How could I ever forget you? You know, when you got born again, you got placed in the body of Christ. And that don't just mean, it does mean being a part of a local body of belief, but it don't just mean that. It means you're in Him and He's in you. That's what John chapter number 15 teaches. Hey, I and my Father are one. 
Hey, he says, I abide in my Father, and I want, I want you to abide in me as I abide in the Father, and you'll abide in me, and I in you, and us in him, and we'll all be one in one. That's what he said. In other words, Peter's sitting there saying, well, God's done with me. No, God ain't done with you. Listen, it's amazing the hubris and the pride in a statement like that. You think you surprised God? You know that the Lord Jesus told Peter everything that was going to happen before it ever happened. It was only the pride of Peter's flesh that caused him to believe that it was unlikely in the first place. The Lord had said, Peter, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go down this hill. You're going to betray. You're going to deny me. You're going to sit around a fire. You're going to curse me. In fact, you're going to curse me and you're going to do it three times. The Lord was not surprised by anything Peter did. But it is the melodramatic hubris of the human spirit and flesh to say, well, I've done messed up too bad. Hey, don't flatter yourself that you even could. God already knows what you are. He knows your frame that you're but dust. Hey, if, if you've been given up on, it's been you that's given up on you. God ain't given up on you. We see that the first thing you want him to understand, forgetting is impossible. Peter probably thought, now he's going to ask to see everybody else, but he ain't going to ask to see me. He's done forgotten about me. He's done moved on from me. He is done with my life. And the Lord says, oh, hey, by the way, tell Peter I'm looking for him. And I hope he's there when I get there. <laughs> the first truth he learns is that forgetting is impossible. There's a second truth that he learns. You know what that is? That forgiveness is available. Hey, listen, when you when you're talking to somebody, particularly somebody that, you are not reconciled to it at the moment. You got some issue with, you got some problem with, there's been some hurt feelings, there's been some weirdness. And, and and you reach out to him and you say, Hey, I just want you to know I'm thinking about you. You know what you're doing? You're saying, Hey, the door's still open. This thing ain't done yet. I still want you in my life, and I still want to be in your life. And whenever the Lord sends this message to Peter, here's what he's saying. Hey, Peter, Peter, I'm looking for you. When you gonna come see me, Peter. When are you going to come talk to me? I remember a story years ago. I was raised in a church over in East Knox when we did bus ministry. And when you do bus ministry, man, you're in a lot of rough parts of town. It's just the way of it. We never really thought much about it, you know. My daddy always told me you could walk the length and breadth of Lonsdale as long as you had a bucket of bubble gum in your, in your arm. They wouldn't bother you because they knew. They knew who the church people was and, and you know, they just, they were used to it. I mean, some of them rode the bus younger and, and their kids were. And so we, you know, we, it didn't, we didn't think nothing about it. And I remember one day I was going out and, uh, we had this boy in the youth group by the name of Willie. And Willie, he was a sweet kid and he hadn't been to church in, in, I don't know, six, eight weeks or something. And I got worried about Willie. And so I said, well, I'm going to go down. I'm going to find Willie. And so me and a, another guy, and this other guy was actually, uh, was, was legally blind, but he, uh, me and him decided he was worked on the bus route that Willie was part of. We decided we was going to go looking for Willie. And so we went down to his grandmama's house and, and knocked on the door and said, hey, you know, we're from the church. We've seen Willie in a little while. We just want to know, is he okay? Where's he at? They said, well, now he's down at the barber's shop. I said, okay, well, you know, where's it at? And they told us. And we said, we'll go stop in there and see if we can find him. So we go down to this barber shop. And uh, when we went to go in, now, I, and I'm trying to set the scene. I don't know if this all going to make sense to you. So if I seem crazy, that's fine. I am. But the here we are. All right, two white guys walking through the ghetto, suit and tie, mind you. And we go into this barber shop, and, and we go to walk in the door of this barber shop. And I didn't know this, 
But this barber shop had two different doors. It had one door that everybody used, and then it had an old door that had just been kind of like, you know, it was one of these, a house that settled, it was kind of jammed, and nobody went through it and everything. That opened directly into the parlor of the barber shop. And, and so we didn't know that. I mean, I had never got my hair cut there, so we didn't know that. So me, me and a fellow named Bob, we go and, and we start, we come and we start knocking on the door. And nobody's hearing us, so we start I'm talking about knocking on the door. And I don't know if you know this, but your knock says certain things, all right? You just come up and you're, you know, but if you come up, you start knocking, you know, with, with vigor. I mean, people start assuming some things. And so we knock on the door and we can't. And so finally somebody says, well, come in. And so we go to open the door and it's jammed. It won't open. And so I just, I don't know. I'm 18, 19 years old. I ain't got a lick of sense. I start throwing my shoulder into this door. I didn't know there was another door. I start throwing my shoulder into the door trying to get it open. And so finally, we come busting into this barber shop, and there's Willie. He's sitting on the couch. And I don't know why it didn't occur to me anything else. I mean, I just started talking to Willie because he's right there, and that's who I was looking for. And so me and this fellow walk in, suit and tie, and I walk up to him. I said, hey, Willie, where you been at, Willie? And he said, man, I don't know. I said, come on, Willie, don't do me that way. Where you been? I want to know where you been, Willie. We've been missing you down there, Willie. Where you been? All of a sudden, this starts looking like a shakedown, you know? <laughs> Come on, Willie. Tell me where you been. Finally, that barber said, man, who are you people? I said, oh, we're down from the church. <laughs> they said, you don't go busting in somebody's door looking for... <laughs> I said, we just missed Willie. We want to know where Willie was. <laughs> we was looking for him. We wanted to know, hey, the Lord has busted in Peter's door. He said, where you been, Peter? I've been looking for you. What's he wanting to say to him? He's wanting to say, hey, this thing ain't done yet. There's forgiveness. If you'll come back to me, we can make this thing right. Can I tell you something? When God throws a shoulder into the door of your heart, sometimes he'll do it, man. It ain't because he's mad at you. It's because he wants you to know that forgiveness is still available. He's wanting you to know there's still a way out. There's still hope, there's still help, there's still grace for every need. And he wants Peter to know, if Peter will just come to him, hey, forgiveness is available. There's a third truth that's found here, and what a sweet one it is. Why would he say this? All right, go and tell my disciples and Peter. What's he trying to say? Is he trying to say Peter's not a disciple anymore? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's trying to say here is, is make sure Peter knows that I've asked about him. Why would he do that? Well, he wants him to know, number one, that forgetting is impossible. God hadn't forgotten about him. He ain't done with him. That forgiveness is available. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now here's what Peter's thinking. I know this because I know my own heart. Here, Peter's saying, I'm done for. I've gone too far. I've messed up too bad. And even if God would take me back, I'm not fit to be his anymore. I mean, how's he ever going to... You understand that Peter's going to sit there robed in, 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 those, in those precious white robes and sing with the rest of us and all of us knowing what he did. Peter's probably thinking, man, there ain't no turning back. I've done blown it. I've messed up too bad. But the Lord says, hey, hey, let Peter know. I'm asking about him. What does he want him to know? He wants him to know that forgetting's impossible and forgiveness is available. He wants him to understand that failure is not final. It's not fatal. You may have messed up, but that don't mean you got to stay messed up. We all mess up. I don't care who you are. Again, and don't take this the wrong way, but take it a little bit the wrong way. 
Who do you think you are that you could even mess up bad enough that you'd surprise God in the first place? Who do we think we are that God would ever have the opinion thinking that we're going to run this thing flawlessly? Here's the truth is, God knows us as we are, what we are, what we've done, what we're doing, and what we're going to do. And He knows us far better than we know us. How arrogant it would be to say, well, I've messed up too bad, God's done. You just messed up when He found you. You are still messed up when He uses you. And you will be messed up till one day He straightens you out in glory. Why would we think that because we fail that our life is done with? Hey, failure isn't final. One of the great precious New Testament texts on God's chastening is in Hebrews chapter 12. And it says in verse number 11 of that chapter, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. If you raised up in a home with discipline, you can say amen to that. <laughs> Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, give up. Are you following me? You following me in the text? Is that what it says? That's not what it says. Wherefore, give up and quit. Wherefore, God's done with you. Wherefore, you done messed up too bad. Sorry. No, wherefore, not give up, but lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Hey, the only thing that's terminal is a quitting spirit. If you're willing to get up and go on, God will help you get up and go on. God's intention in chasing you is not to break you that He can destroy you. It's to break you that He can remake you. His purpose is not to chasten you so that He can bury you, but it's to chasten you that He can bless and bloom your life. And the writer of Hebrews, who I think is Paul, says here, he says, hey, listen, you've been to the Lord's woodshed. You ain't the first one. Go ahead and just lift your head up. Get them, hey, lift up them hands that are hanging down. Straighten out them knees that have been knocking and turning this way and that. Get up and go on for the glory of God. Because God didn't do this so that He could destroy you. God did this so that He could develop you. Peter learns just in those two little words, and Peter, what he learns is, if he's willing to get up and go on, God will go with him. And God will take him. And God will carry him. And God will help him. And God will restore him. The only reason that people fall and don't get back up is they decide not to get back up. Hey, the righteous man falleth seven times, but the Lord holdeth him up. It ain't that the righteous man don't fall. Find me that in your Bible. The righteous man falls. But it's that the Lord helps him back up. If you're willing to get back up, hey, you know what that number seven is in your Bible? That's the number of completion and perfection. It's the number of development. It's the number of something that has been brought and developed to a stage where it needs to be developed no further. And what it's saying is this. The Lord's only going to let you fall as many times as is needful to mature and complete your life. And every time that you fall, if you'll get back up, He'll keep giving you strength. He'll keep pushing you forward. Peter learns that night that if his life, and man, thank God his life didn't end there. Peter gets it right. The Lord gets it right in Peter's life. And the Lord had never got it wrong, but the Lord straightens out what was wrong in Peter's life. And Peter goes on and is used of God. But if he had believed that lie of the devil, the world, the flesh, that lie straight out of hell, that because he had messed up, he was messed up and couldn't get right, boy, we wouldn't have first and second Peter. I, I guess the Lord would have still given us a church, but He would have had to have used somebody other than Peter on the day of Pentecost. So much that God did in the New Testament, He wouldn't have done or couldn't, He didn't do, wouldn't have done it through the same person. I'm glad Peter got up and went on 
And I hope that we will as well. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes. Miss Connie's going to come play or Miss Karen. Somebody's going to come play. And the altar is open. You're invited to come down and talk to the Lord. I don't have to know and I don't need to know why you need to talk to the Lord. It ain't my business. The Lord didn't speak my name when He talked to you tonight. He spoke your name. He said, and, and then He said, your name. And that kind of leads me to believe He's got something He wants to talk about with you. So why don't you do as Peter and meet him down here? Why don't you let the Lord speak to your heart and your mind? Say, preacher, I wouldn't know what to say. Well, just come down and talk to what it is that he's put on your heart. Lord, I did this. I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have. Lord, I didn't do this when I know I should have. Lord, my spirit has not been where it's needed to be. Lord, my attitude has not been glorifying to you. Lord, I didn't take that step of faith that you gave me an opportunity for. Lord, I didn't take that opportunity to witness that you opened the door for. Hey, whatever it is, failure isn't fatal. It's not final. It's not terminal. If you'll bring it to the Lord, He'll deal with it according to His will, by His grace, in a way that's for your good and for His glory. These are praying we have all the time we need. If God touched your heart, I want you to meet Him down here. Let Him have His will and way in your life.